This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. You're listening to a Joycast from GLBTIQ community radio station, Joy 94.9. Welcome to the Rainbow Report. News, opinion, current affairs for the Rainbow community from Joy 94.9. Australia's only full-time gay and lesbian radio station. Gay and lesbian radio station. And now your host, Doug Pollard. Doug Pollard. News and interviews. Joy 94.9. Well, good evening. Thanks to Chris and Cam for the Drive Factory. And welcome to the Rainbow Report. We're talking about hate crime and the law tonight. What exactly is a hate crime? Do we need special laws to deal with them and why? Tonight, Professor Gail Mason will join us from the University of Sydney to explain what the existing laws say and how the various laws, because they're different in different jurisdictions, actually work. Greg Adkins from the Anti-Violence Project of Victoria can't be here in person, but he'll be with us online. Uh, But we begin with the Victoria Police, who want tougher penalties for hate crimes, according to the Herald Sun. Acting Deputy Commissioner Andrew Crisp is with us in the studio to explain. And lending a hand tonight, my producer and co-host, James Newbery. Hi, James. Hi, Doug. You made it through the traffic. I did. I don't understand how people live like this. (laughs) Well, you know what it's like. It rains, so they drive faster because they know it's dangerous and they want to get out of it. Now, uh, this is Doug Pollard, as I said, producer James Newbery riding shotgun on the line with us at the moment. We also have Greg Adkins of the Anti-Violence Project. Good evening, Greg. Good evening, Doug. How are you? Um, Very well. And uh, here in the studio, Acting Deputy Commissioner Andrew Crisp. Now, there was this, uh, and also Electra Wellens from the Gay and Lesbian Liaison Officers. So we've got full house in here. Andrew, I want to start with you. Um, There was a report in the Herald Sun that said you were looking for tougher penalties for people convicted of hate crimes. Is that right? We weren't so much looking for tougher penalties. What it is is for Victoria Police is to make sure we put the, the best evidence before the court. So if there is the, if there is a factor um, impacting on this crime where there is prejudice involved, that the court can take that into account in terms of sentencing because they have, they have powers uh, when it comes to sentencing to impose greater sanctions if, in fact, there, there is an issue of prejudice. Well, that, that leads to a couple of questions. One is, one is how, how do you prove there is prejudice? Look, that's a matter for Victoria Police to investigate. And as you understand and appreciate, we investigate crimes um, all day, every day. Um, some of it is extremely overt. And I, I suppose you only have to look at some recent examples that have appeared in the media in terms of people using uh, phones to, to capture images and, and footage of people in, engaged in activity that um, is, is less than desirable. So it's the investigation process and there's a number of means that we can go about doing that. Another example that comes to mind is if where you've got a particular slogan which can quite easily depict um, a, an issue of prejudice. Right. Greg, um, you are the expert on on this with the Anti-Violence Project. Uh, Are people wary of reporting a crime to the police as being prejudice-motivated? 
Well, Doug, I'm on the line from Berwick, and Berwick's down, down the southeast. Southeast people here, it, to our knowledge, report far less than people that are in the inner urban areas of the city. So this is a bit of a, feel like a, a spotlight on the uh, what happens in regional Australia, what happens in outer suburban Melbourne, and uh, they're far less to report that which happens to them. So we rely on the police then to capture the data, to capture the words that people use, to accurately have in their report where prejudice motivation is part of the offence that takes place. And that's part of the problem, isn't it, Andrew? It's, it's, getting, the, it's getting people to report in the first place. That, that, that's exactly right. We can't investigate unless a matter's actually reported to us. So, um, yeah, Greg makes a, a good point, but we do want people to, to report crimes in the first place. Electra, how can the gay and lesbian liaison officers help with this? I mean, what's their role in this? Uh, yes, thanks. <laughs> what it is uh, for the gay and lesbian liaison officers is that we play a pivotal role between the community and uh, police mm-hmm. and really want to build up the trust and confidence um, to encourage people to report, to approach police with any questions they may have. Um, it might be even just guidance with an intervention order um, in a domestic situation, right up to actually being and being aware of all the barriers that can be quite complex for the GLBTI community and coming forward to reporting. So they play a really important role in building that trust and those opportunities for engagement. Um, so, so, so if someone thinks they have been subjected to a prejudice-related crime, they can call their local GLOW and get them involved? Absolutely. We've got 34 right across the state from metropolitan and rural areas as well. And... Um, they play a great role in being able to do that. So most people that have that portfolio role keep that portfolio role and travel from different areas. So throughout their career, they maintain that. So that's a really great asset with education as well. James. Electra, I think the the GLOWs do a really amazing job at trying to reach out and be a safe space um, for LGBTI issues. My question, though, is... What's this initiative going to look like? Under the most recent Commissioner of Police, we've seen the GLOWs lose funding, lose prestige. We've seen a shrinking of this and and a move back towards good old-fashioned old fashioned policing with no moustaches and a bit of, well, let's say slap them up beside the head if need be, kind of crack some skulls kind of stuff. And... You've been listening to the police union, haven't you? <laughs> I ha- well, he has that amazing moustache. How could I not listen? Anyhow, my point remains... If I can what? join in, Doug, if I can join in, it's actually more sure. about trust. It's not just it's not not just the police doing a job, good job. It's actually the trust and the relationship we've built up. And we've changed 20 years of really poor relationships and turned it into something that's a successful part of getting hate crimes reported. And that trust is finally balanced. Look what happened in Sydney with yep. the Mardi Gras. Yep. So, and, you know, if anything like that happened in Melbourne, that trust goes out the window. We go back mm. 10 years. So what does this initiative look like, um, Acting Deputy Commissioner? You, you raised a, a few points um, there, James. And, um, and one thing, rest assured that um, the Chief Commissioner in Victoria Police is not, is not backing away from our, our commitment in terms of um, our liaison officers. Um, again, the, the challenge for us, and, and I actually want to be in a position where we don't have to rely as much on our liaison officers. For, for me, I want all our general duties members to be aware of these issues, to, to build trust no matter what the community, and, and therefore to, to encourage people to, to report crimes as, as they might occur there's um, another side to this as well and i'm sure greg would bear me out on this one is um you first of all you've got to get people to report it 
Um, you've got to get the evidence that it is a prejudice-related crime. I know that's your preferred term rather than hate crime. Um, but the other side of this is what you do with the information when you get it, or rather what the investigating officer does with it when they get it. Because if they don't record it mm. as being a prejudice-related crime, then it doesn't get treated as one. Yeah, they're, 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 and, and I'll, I'll be upfront that we probably haven't done that as well as we mm. could have um, over, over recent times, but we've improved our internal processes now. So our, our, our LEAP, where we record our data, our law enforcement assistance program, we actually now have the, the tick boxes so to actually pick up where there are issues to do with, with, with prejudice. So internally, we've actually done a lot around this. Greg, are you finding that's the case? Well, it's also, um, the Assistant Commissioner, I understand what you're saying, but it's also around where in the notes in the file words are missed. Now, police are human beings. They're just, you know, they're like mm-hmm. you and me, Doug. They're like everyone else. They can make mistakes. Really? I hadn't noticed. <laughs> well, they can. And they're human, and we respect them for that. But they can make mistakes. We need something that captures the words that get missed in the tick box side of their data reporting, mm-hmm. and we can pull those words, and that informs where we go with the work on prejudice crime. Electro. You're spot on, Greg, and that's something that this strategy has actually looked at, because in part of this strategy of what we've developed is the recognition that, in fact, that um, it's not just up to police to make that decision. It's actually up to the victim who's reporting if they believe that has been a, uh, some form of prejudice in the commission of a crime, then the police officer is also uh, will acknowledge that. So it's not just up to the police officer to do that interpretation. And as you can imagine, there's a variety of different circumstances where uh, someone may be a victim to a crime, they may be unconscious, and they can't provide any evidence that it was actually a prejudice-motivated crime, but other witnesses. So that can come through, not just through the initial reporting process, but through the investigation. But that is a really important thing in the strategy that we've noted through community consultation is really around victims being able to say, I believe that this is, and then it's up to the police to then do the investigation process. Right. We've got a message here in from uh, one of the listeners who says, hate crimes could be used by individuals for political reasons and the system abused accordingly. How can you differentiate between a genuine concern or somebody who's running a vendetta? Look, in some respects, that's that's no different to um, the way we investigate a whole range of crimes. You know, mm. we have to, we actually have to have a, a solid case to take before the, before the courts. And in fact, that's one of the things that is recorded if it is political and people have political agendas, and that in fact can be a form of discrimination mm, um, towards political uh, views as well. So we do take that into consideration. Right, James. Does the existence of this kind of um, initiative? make it less likely to miscategorise crimes like has happened in other jurisdictions where we've seen a lot of gay hate murders and stuff um, be miscategorised as misadventure or suicide when in reality it was just that the the police didn't want to get involved or felt the victims kind of deserved it. How are we moving away from that historical... Well, I think what James is getting at is that when you have a system like this in place, it's less likely that 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 could happen because you have to record these things now. That's right. And and it's not just systems. It's actually people, as Greg pointed out. You know, we're we're all human beings. And and, and again, there's a a very much an an upfront focus with our members coming into the academy now. So so they're briefed in in relation to these these particular issues. Uh, And again, we we actually work to a victim's framework. So there is an obligation response for us to, to work with victims. Okay, well, we're, we're, if I can add, Doug, if yeah. I, can add, I went to the graduation dinner for a squad of squad five of the recruits the other week, 
Mm. And uh, and they openly talk. They now talk about what they're going to do on the ground and the stuff they're doing because they're now all deployed. They're all you know, graduated. They're okay, athletes. look, great. And they're actually aware of it, though. They're, they're putting it into Good. practice right now. Well, we'll go, we'll go and uh, we'll come back to you later in the show and you can tell us all about that. In the meantime, enjoy your dinner, Greg. And uh, we're going to have to uh, leave it there because we're out of time. But uh, thank you very much, both of you, for joining us tonight and good luck with your initiative. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, you're, you're, you're more than welcome. Now, Associate Professor Gail Mason from the University of Sydney is a former director of the Sydney Institute of Criminology, and she more or less wrote the book, or in fact several of them, uh, on the subject of hate crimes. Her research in particular centres on racist and homophobic violence, hate crime law and punishment, and what's described as the legal construction of hatred. And she's with us on the line now. Good evening, Gail. Hello, Doug. Uh, Now, you have described hate crime as a moral as well as a legal category. What does that mean? Well, essentially, I think when we're talking about any form of crime, we're really always talking about moral values because if you think about what the criminal law does, it basically tells us what kinds of behaviours are acceptable and what kinds of behaviours are unacceptable according to supposedly some kind of social consensus or social standard. So hate crime laws, in that sense, are really just the same as other criminal laws except... I'd say that they try and do something a little bit different. And what I mean by that, <clears throat> excuse me, is that hate crime laws basically, you know, allow for a certain type of punishment if the offence is motivated by prejudice or hatred. But um, my point when I'm saying that they're moral is that I'm suggesting that they actually do more than just the normal punishment or deterrence. They also send a really important message of um, state support, of government support, of social support for the minority groups who do feel that they're targeted by prejudice-motivated crime. So in that sense, they're kind of symbolic. Yeah, um, that, that's one thing that worries me a little bit about about these kinds of laws because, um, it, yes, it sends that signal of support for one, lo- one minority, but it also sends a signal to another minority, um, for example, say an extreme right-wing min- minority or a racist minority, um, that their free speech is being impinged, that they can't say what they, what they think they have a right to say um, and breeds kind of resentment and possibly even drives them underground. What would you say to that? Look, I think there's probably two separate issues there. Um, I would agree with you on, on your second point, which is that hate crime laws can breed resentment. But I think that that resentment is something that happens more between minority groups. Um, so what I mean by that is, if you look at some hate crime laws, um, they might protect um, people from racist violence. Say we take Western Australia, for example, they've got really strong hate crime laws over there, but they only apply to racist crime. They don't apply, for example, to homophobic violence. Right. Um, so in that sense, um, yeah, those, those kinds of laws do breed resentment between some minority groups who say, well, how come they've got the extra protection and we haven't? But in terms of your first point about, um, you know, extremist groups or right-wing groups saying, oh, these laws infringe upon my freedom of speech. Well, that's 
that that's just a misunderstanding of what the laws do. Because, for example, in, in Victoria, um, the criminal laws don't do anything like that. They're not about um, punishing people for their speech. You've got to have really good evidence that the crime was actually motivated by hatred. Yeah, and that, that brings me to another point, which is um, one of the criticisms of hate crime laws is that, they, is that they're a form of thought crime, that you can't actually prove what people are actually thinking or what people are actually motivated by, um, and that it doesn't really make any difference. If you've killed somebody, you've still killed them. If you've beaten them up, you've still beaten them up. Why should there be differential penalties for the same offence? Yeah, look, I think those are both really good points. Um and really, a lot of advocates who, and I'm not necessarily an advocate for hate crime laws, um, but a lot of advocates would say, well, hate, hate crime itself is worse than other forms of crime. And they might use, there's often a lot of different reasons put forward for that. One is that um, hate crime inflicts greater injury on its victims. Well, like, look, to be honest, the evidence for that isn't convincing. But I think there is, is other really good evidence to show that hate crimes do harm the whole community. For example, uh, we know that if, uh, you know, if there's a homophobic attack somewhere in Melbourne, we know that a whole group of uh, members of the gay and lesbian community might start to feel vulnerable. So in that sense, the, the argument goes that these types of crimes are worse than other types of crimes because um, they make the whole community feel vulnerable. They, mm -hmm. they make the whole community feel like they're under attack. And in a sense, that's said to be, I guess, a... I guess it undermines um, values of multiculturalism, freedom to diversity. Okay, so if we, if, we, if we take, for example, um, anti-Semitic crimes, mm. the, um, obviously there's particular sensitivity in the Jewish community because of what they've been through in the past. So what, what, what the argument there, I suppose, would be that if, if one Jew is attacked, it is in, likely to be taken as an attack on the whole Jewish community. Mm. Yes, yeah, that, that's exactly the argument. And as I say, I'm not so much an advocate for hate crime laws. Obviously, I'm very interested in how they sure. operate and what they do. But I do actually think that that is probably, from my position, where the strongest argument lies for Gail. hate crime legislation. Uh, Gail, James Newbury here. We've just yeah, got a listener that. question in. Mm. Do you think that we have a different standard of tolerance and racism in the media? That, that's in the light of what's happened with Eddie Maguire today. Gail's from New South Wales. She's not going to be AFL mad, I don't think. You, 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 you haven't heard about Eddie I Maguire? I did catch up with um, Eddie Maguire's <laughs> comment um, about um, Adam footballer. Because yes. it was the Sydney Swans, after oh. all. Oh, OK. Yes, I should be completely familiar with this. <laughs> yes, no, apparently it's a thing. <laughs> so, yes, but getting back to the thing, is there, do you think, a different standard of tolerance and racism in the media, Gail? Well, um, there are laws that, that do govern the media, for example, around questions of vilification. Mm. And so if uh, someone in the media does cross the line, um, you can bring a complaint of vilification. It's not a crime, mm. but it can be heard under a different jurisdiction. Whether or not there's a different standard... Um, I think it's very difficult to say. I mean, some people would say that we actually hold the media up to higher standards than we do most of our friends or family. Yeah, could, mm. could well be. Um, one point I didn't get to with our uh, policeman friends when they were here, which I did want to raise, and I'll raise it with you. Um, when people talk about hate crime, when people talk about prejudice-motivated crime, which is the police's preferred term, 
Um, a lot of people automatically think that it's some kind of um, physical or verbal attack, but it can, in fact, be any kind of crime that's motivated by prejudice, can't it? Well, well, that's right, and uh, that's how the laws work in Victoria, for example. Um, you basically have to have somebody who's been convicted of a crime, and it can be any crime. It can be an assault, it can be vandalism, or it could be a homicide. And then when they go to court, if they're, fa- if they're found guilty, mm. then when they're sentenced, um, it, that's when the hate crime laws kick in. It could, in theory, even be something that, that, that wasn't any kind of an attack. It could be a theft or something like that if it was shown oh, to be motivated by prejudice, yeah? Absolutely. And you would have to prove, though, that that crime was motivated by prejudice. But there are cases where uh, the courts, where that's actually been successfully proven. Yeah, um, that's the one thing that I find kind of difficult to to get my head around, that you can prove a motivation. But I I guess I've been reading too many tech novels over the years where they keep telling you that motive's not important, you could just have to show who did it. Um, I want to move on a little bit here. Um, There are different kinds of hate crime law, aren't there? Now, I'll, I'll just give you what I think of the different kinds are. There's the ones where there's an aggravated form of the uh, charge in the first place. So the police actually charge someone with a prejudice-motivated crime. There's the one where, if it can be shown that it was prejudice-motivated, then they get a kind of additional tariff when they get sentenced. And there's another one where um, it can be taken into account by the judge during sentencing, but doesn't have to be. Uh, am I correct there? That's roughly... Oh, you've actually missed one type. Oh, um, well, you're the expert. Unless I've <laughs> misinterpreted you. Um, but that's where there is what... Um, and maybe this is what you meant by your second category. But that's where there's just a, an offence, that a, a substantive offence um, under the criminal code, for example, or the, or the criminal legislation, that actually creates certain elements that make up the hate crime. And so the person is charged with that offence... And it's not so much whether or not it's got an additional penalty or not. It's just a a standard offence. Right. Okay. Um, Do we have any evidence that these things actually work? And and if so, which kind work best? Look, I can't point to any evidence internationally even uh, that suggests that hate crime laws um, work. Although I would say when you say work, it depends how we're going to measure that, isn't it? (laughs) For example, if you're asking me, do hate crime laws deter or prevent hate crime, I would have to fall down on the side of, well, firstly, there's no evidence. And (laughs) secondly, though, um, there's very little evidence to suggest that any form of criminal law or heavier punishment actually deters people from committing crimes. Um, In the sense that In the sense that, yes, law itself might act as a deterrent, but in terms of just actually giving someone an extra penalty, well, uh, there's really no convincing evidence that that's actually going to make very much difference. So hate crime laws are probably the same as other laws in that area. So hate crime laws don't work. The law and order auction doesn't help. And well, how do we rid ourselves of this? So it, so it doesn't actually, there's no proof to show that in areas where they have hate crimes, the level of hate crime falls. Not that I'm aware of, no. I think it, it's quite difficult to get that kind of evidence. And I'm fairly familiar with the international research mm-hmm, in mm. this field. And I can't point to anything that demonstrates that. But I would say that that doesn't mean that they don't have an impact. It could just be that it just hasn't been established. It would be very difficult.
Yeah, um, because that's leading me to think that it's possibly more um, in the nature of a gesture. It's more in the nature of a public statement, as you said, to to, to, uh, indicate support for the protected minorities um, rather than having anything very much to do with deterring crime. Well, look, I do think that there is a tendency, especially nowadays, in a so-called let's get tough on crime um, atmosphere, there is a tendency for people to reach to the law, particularly the criminal law, as a solution to problems that might be better dealt with under educational programs or those kinds of things. I do think that with hate crime laws, yeah, it's hard to say that they're actually having any impact in terms of reducing the problem itself. But I do think, yes, they serve a symbolic benefit if people think that that is of value. But, you know, the other area where they may well be of benefit is in terms of law enforcement. So they give the police, um, I guess... They send a message to the police as well um, and to to prosecutors that this is actually a crime that needs to be taken seriously. They actually assist the police to develop better data collection methods and to think about how to identify these problems. And all of those are really positive things. Yeah, that's what we were hearing uh, about earlier on with uh, the Assistant Deputy Commissioner from the Victoria Police here. They're they're having a renewed push on hate crime. And uh, what they're asking for is um, for people to report things as hate crime and they're also working on improving their data collection so that they can identify hate crime so yeah, you've just uh, given an extra boost to that that's <laughs> actually working with the Victoria Police Gail um, thank you very much for joining us this evening and it's been a pleasure uh, and uh, good luck with the rest of your work we look forward to seeing um, more stories of uh, how, how hate crime works from you in the future Right. Thanks very much. Good night. Good night. That was uh, Associate Professor Gail Mason there from the University of Sydney School of Law. Joy 94.9 is a GLBTIQ community radio station in Melbourne, Australia. Support Joy 94.9 by becoming a member at joy.org.au. And this is your host, Doug Pollard. And with me in the studio, of course, my producer, James Newbery. And we are joined now on the desk, the man who pushes the buttons. Hi. TJ. <laughs> it is me. Our, our, our token heterosexual for the evening, because he was kind of like boiling over during the last interview oh, I, with all sorts of questions. I think boiling over is a strong <laughs> way of putting it, but I, I was semi-opinionated. I do have some questions, I suppose. Well, it was at least a light simmer. It was a light. I, I'll give you that. It was a light yeah. simmer. All right. Let's, let's so so what was bothering you about all that? Well, one thing that Gail mentioned was that there is no hard evidence that this actually works, which would lead one to think that there would be only evidence of the contrary. Not necessarily. Not? A lack of evidence is not necessarily an evidence of lack. So just because something you can't prove that something works, it doesn't necessarily hold that it has a negative effect. It could just be useless. For instance, <laughs> well... I mean, really, yeah, there's a lot of things in my life which are useless. Doug, <laughs> Doug can you help me find an example? <laughs> not off the top of my head there. Solar powered torch. Let's go with that. Solar powered torch. Why the hell not? Why the hell not? Look, what do you think about this? You're young. People my age and younger don't want to get involved in what's happening in people's skulls generally. What about Generation Y? My opinions of this would be that. Uh, the GLBTI community fights for inclusion and, more importantly, to a, a level acceptance of acceptance to the point where it's not about your sexuality, gender, mm. what have you. So having hate crimes that are based on highlighting why you're different 
doesn't seem to be going down that path. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't to me... I think this is a great initiative from the Victoria Police, but I'm concerned about the legislative response that might come down the, the pike with mm. this, that to me it almost feels like a way of highlighting our difference rather than highlighting our inclusion. That's exactly the point I'm trying to make. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's been an argument, though, about every kind of gay-specific law, because every time something comes up, and um, we, we've been hearing about it over the... Um, We've been hearing about it regarding the um, uh, Sex Discrimination Act that's about to be changed to cover GLBTI and then the exemption for GLBTI seniors in religious care. And people saying, well, you know, why do you need special protections? Why? Oh, that's because the people that own those facilities hate us and (laughs) want to harm us. Um, We've just had a message in, Doug. Minority groups must also stop playing identity politics. It is a credible way to establish themselves as part of the wider community. Which I think is just saying the same thing in, in different it, words, isn't it? Yes, but I mean, to get back to this um, Butler announcement today concerning aged care, hmm. gay elders like yourself are about to go into a retirement home. So the oh, first I not. <laughs> <laughs> Doug in a retirement home, could you imagine? That would be amazing. The first generation of gay men is about to, openly gay men is about to retire. We lost the last generation to HIV, the first generation of out men. Now the first, the, the tail end of the baby boomers that survived the survivors, that yeah. are about to go into um, aged care. I'm really worried about shoving them back in the closet because people who own these profit-making enterprises just are distasteful about with whom these people slept 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, James, you said that they hated them. Would this then be a form of hate crime? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, No, because there is religious exemptions. So we can set up a church and the church of I hate you and it can get tax exemptions and it can get um, exemptions from anti-discrimination law, um, exemptions from a whole raft of things and any form of, should we say, um, humanly jurisdiction. Yeah, but we're getting a little bit away from the topic here. Mm, indeed. Um, and, and talking about hate crime, I think. One of the things I wanted to bring up, um, there are actually some laws that work in the opposite direction. There are some laws that specifically, still around, that specifically criminalise things that happen around gay people. And I'm thinking in particular of the... Uh, Gay panic defence, which I believe is still hanging that's around. A, that's in still a real thing. Queensland. Yeah, it is. I, as the resident Queenslander, I have to tell you, it is real. Um, and could you, for for the benefit of those who don't know, <clears throat> okay, so let's have a hypothetical case. Um, a man of about thirty years old was found dead. Um, he had been drinking with a, um, supposedly a friend of his, and. Um, that friend eventually killed him. It turned out that the friend killed him because they had had an argument, apparently, um, and one thing led to another. There was a, a violent struggle, and the gay guy wound up with his skull crushed in. There is um, a belief that he was killed for being gay. There's another um, belief in that... Well, there was a defence Yeah, the, def- the defence guy, the guy who was accused, said... Yeah, I bashed him because he made a pass at me. Yes, anyhow. And that is that is a partial defence in mm. Queensland law. Why? Why? Um, because it's still... It, it's, it's a defence called provocation. It needn't necessarily be 
um, gay panic as such. The the statute allows for people to be provoked into murdering somebody. So if someone broke into your house and was threatening your child, for instance, or your loved one, and you took their life, you would be charged with manslaughter rather than than anything mm-hmm. or. You could you could use it that way, the, the but, fun- that's, but that's totally counter to the anti-violence and the anti-hate stuff that we've been talking about today. Because <laughs> under Victorian law, if he was bashing this guy because he was gay, he'd get a, he'd get a worse sentence, not a lighter one. Mm. Mm. So I mean, th- th- how can you have a hate crime law and a gay panic law in the same state? Well, they're they're not doing this in Queensland. This is a Victorian initiative. But is there a hate crime law in Queensland that you know of? Not that I know of, or at least not one that's actually enforced, which or, raises... Or that a, relates to LGBTI, probably one that relates to race. Probably one that relates to race. But fundamentally, this is the thing. If there are no laws, they're no good. If they're not enforced, they're worthless because they've just wasted paper. And if, if they're not taken seriously, I think these hate crimes are symptomatic of something far more insidious, Doug, that there are people who hate us and want to hurt us. And I have jokingly said I would like to develop a drone strike capability for the gay (laughs) community, but, you know, I dare say that that would be prosecuted as a hate crime. So rather than harsher penalties, would it not be better to perhaps re-educate these people? Well, Stalin tried that in, um, well, in a less Stalinistic <laughs> kind of way. Um, well, I think I, th- I think you're probably right there that education is um, what's at the root of this problem. But if we want to take it even further back, you, how does this kind of hatred develop in the first place? How is it allowed to grow? Where is it? Is it not challenged in the schools? Is it not challenged in the homes? Because if you want to prevent this kind of thing happening, you know, coming along afterwards and saying, "Oh, you've got to do an extra two years in jail," doesn't really do anybody any good. It really doesn't and there are two main places where this kind of hate is encouraged the first one is churches now i'm sorry to all of the religious gays out there the simple reality is is that religion is a massive challenge that we are trying to find our way through the other place where this is happening in a massive way is sporting teams and i'm sorry to all the sporting gays out there but in reality you know as well as i do that they're in the professional afl world it is a training technique to develop homophobia in people. Well, not, I think probably less so in the professional AFL these days, but certainly everywhere up to that level, certainly in the local clubs, certainly in the local areas. And this is at the it's grassroots. Not, it's not challenged. Yeah, where this is happening, where, oh, what are you, a poof, you didn't take that mark, is actually something a coach will say. Yes. And not like that long ago. I think it, I would bet it was said in this state last week. Oh, uh, I had an email from um, a listener a couple of weeks ago saying that they didn't want to make a big fuss about it, but uh, they were at a country football match and they spent the entire match they spent being sledged for being gay. Mm. Um, and when they complained about it, uh, the guy turned out to be one of the team officials. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with that? I mean, the well, he said in the end, it just wasn't worth making the fuss. He just had to walk away and let it ride. It, it's disgusting to me that we give state money to people with hatred in their hearts. And I don't know how to combat it yet, but I will. <laughs> the James Newbury effect has yet to kick in. <laughs> and when James gets in there, he gets in there. Um so I, I think kind of what we're saying at the moment between ourselves here is that we're, we're actually quite dubious about this whole notion of hate crimes. I'm dubious about the notion of hate crimes. I am very thankful the police have finally got on board that there are hate crimes and that they're going to record them and try and prosecute them and bring it up to the judge's attention when sentencing comes. 
I think that's an important step forward because it, it helps shift the police culture from ignoring, which is something I, I imagine you've dealt with, Doug, where the police ignored crimes against the homosexual community. Well, they're a lot better than they used to be, and they're a lot better in Australia than they are in the UK. Um, mm. Certainly in my early years, um, if you were in any kind of trouble and the police knew you were gay, they uh, were not terribly helpful, to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, I can remember occasions when I was out selling gay news in the early days in the 1970s, for mm. example, and uh, we weren't allowed in a lot of the gay pubs to sell because um, the owners didn't want gay liberation and they didn't want the queers to get loose, as it were, and go and drink in other bars, kind of thing. Um, so you could sometimes be intimidated by bar staff or indeed by other customers who didn't want mm. you drawing to attention to the fact that the pub was gay. But there was no point in turning to the police for help because I remember on one occasion when uh, I did so and he said, what's that you're selling? And I said, it's a gay newspaper. And he said, well, roll it where I can't roll it, shove it, shove it where I can't shove it and if off home. Oh, helpful. And that was the extent of the help I got. <laughs> you know? And my um, my distrust of the police. Uh, I'm I'm much younger. I'm 34, and Doug is, shall we say, a gentleman of a certain age. <laughs> um, but my distrust of the police comes about from the 90s. You know, once again, not that long ago. Mm. I, I can, and now Queensland's a different state, to be sure, but. I want I want this trust to be built up between us. I want to let go of all of that fear that I'm carrying. And it was far less intense for me. So mm. I can only imagine how it feels for the gay elders. Yes. I, I, I think you have to give the Victoria Police credit. They've probably come further than almost any other police force mm. in Australia. I mean, we have heard recently um, about the breakdown in relations with New South Wales Police after Mardi Gras. Um, there they have, in fact, almost completely abandoned the GLLO, the Globe, mm. Gay and Lesbian Liaison Officer Program. Um, they, they hardly have anyone now. They have a... Um, it, it's, it's like a PR arm now, but rather than being people on the ground as they as they are here. Yeah, we're seeing that though in in all the jurisdictions. We're even seeing it in Victoria. So while I welcome this initiative, and and we'll be welcoming it with open arms and trying to reach out, as it were, um, I'm not I'm not sure that that the lack of money is going to be particularly helpful. Yeah, it's become what what is now known here as a portfolio role. Previously, it was a dedicated role. Um, it's now what they call a portfolio role. In other words, it's just an added, added little perk. You can, you know, a little job you can add on top of your ordinary job. Tonight, we're looking into hate crime, violence, and the law. And Greg Adkins, now of the Anti-Violence Project, rejoins us on the line. Hi, Greg. G'day, Doug, and I'm still out here in beautiful, sunny Berwick. Sunny? <laughs> Different time zone. I didn't think it was that far away. Um, things you do to try and get discussion going about prejudice crime, Doug, out in the burbs. Oh, the things you try and do to get a discussion going about it on a gay radio station in Melbourne. <laughs> oh, God, I don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah, we, we were just talking um, uh, after the last guest left, after we'd spoken to Gail Mason. Um, she was saying that there wasn't any evidence, in fact, that, that, that hate crime laws really make any difference um would that be your experience well no i think gail has to perhaps get off her um, comfortable chair and come and sit in court when there's a trial a, a trial where prejudice has formed the reasons why the offenders are sitting in the dock and i think of recently when uh, we had uh, 
people from Canberra or Sydney, I can't remember the location, but they bashed on, on uh, New Year's Eve in, in Melbourne up Sydney Road and uh, four offenders in two cars. Uh, two of the offenders actually fled the scene and they they ended up um, having to be caught sometime later with one person sometime after the other's face court. Now, sitting in court, the impact on the victims and the, the prejudice displayed was really quite clear and it showed that, yes, we uh, do need... Um, work on prejudice-motivated crime, and we need further work so that this never happens in the first place in our society. Well, that is what we were just talking about there. In fact, that um, that um, yeah, it's it's uh, one thing to whack somebody with some extra sentencing time because their crime was prejudice motivated but that's not going to make an awful lot of difference to prejudice in the community we need to we need to hit a lot sooner we need to hit in places like sports teams and schools well Doug you and I have grown up you know we're not um, we're the wrong side of 40 put it that way both of us and we've grown up understanding that if you um, if you cause a person to lose their life there'll be a severe penalty for it if we um, assault someone there's a penalty for it it's probably a bit less than what you get if you cause someone harm and they die. Um, if we run a red light and someone in a car and we kill someone in the process, there's a penalty for it. We understand from society that there's a, a penalty that's proportionate to the offence we, we have uh, committed. But there is no proportion that society understands around prejudice. We are establishing a new discussion with our society about how you proportion um, prejudice in the scale of justice. And it's it's never been done before in this state. James. Hi, hi Greg. Uh, it's James Newbury here. We've just had a listener comment in from Constantine Seville of Germany. Hi, guys. I'm currently listening to Joy from Germany at work. It's really interesting to follow your discussions over there and thinking about the issues raised. So thanks for that. I'm comparatively quite young. I'm 25, and although I'm always somewhat expecting to have negative effects about being out and gay, I only have ever had supportive experiences, or people simply don't care. Do you think that the younger generation in Australia has similar tendencies, or that the problem of hate crimes might be less when people uh, might get less because younger people tend to be more tolerant? So, is there a generational difference in the uh, perpetrators, Greg? I think you step one step back to answer that question. That is, the, uh, we don't, you know, offenders that have hatred towards others based on race, sexuality, or gender, uh, they're not created. They're bathed in it from their parents and their grandparents, other influencing adults. So um, kids are created by their influences. And it's very fortunate that the German listener has actually had that experience. And I hope many young people that they have lives free of prejudice and hate and motivation down that path. But the facts are uh, there's a, a core of people that will still be bathed in the prejudice that their parents gave them and they will then breed kids and provide that influence over their children that cause their children to breed hatred towards other people. So how so, do we break um, that cycle? We break it by societal change. We break it by broad community discussion between um, all members of society saying you can't do it. We have sentencing provisions. We have penalties that pick up the hate motivation. We have um, campaigns like No to Homophobia that have enduring funding. We have organisations like uh, the Rights Lobby that do their work, mm. uh, the Anti-Violence Project that then can support victims of violence, the switchboards of the world that can do their work more effectively. We, we actually change society through 
um, the interactions we have with the straight people when we're same-sex attracted. Uh, one one, one, one thing that the uh, that Gail brought up, which I thought was interesting, um, it, she said maybe the principal use of hate crime laws is not the impact it has um, on the perpetrators who are caught and sentenced, but actually on the culture of the police forces, because it forces them to pay attention to hate crime. It forces them to record hate crime. Um, and, and thereby makes a culture shift in the police, which, which in the long term makes things better for the gay community. I think she's right for one half of the coin. The other half is we actually have a, a new breed of police men and women coming on board that are completely different than ones that have come before. You know, I've rubbed shoulders with them. I've, yeah, you, 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 you uh, do some, a little bit of lecturing at the police academy, don't you? The Any Violence Project and other people down there, they're part of uh, inducting, I suppose, uh, brand new police, police recruits into uh, how they interact with community and society and gender diverse communities. But, but also, um, we work daily with them from the Anti Violence Project. We take uh, people who've experienced crime and we handshake them to police stations around the state. We, um, we have discussions at local police stations with the constabulary. And the young and up-and-coming emerging police men and women don't have the same dinosaur influences that their previous generations of police had. The, um, the prejudice isn't there because the older prejudice people have, have started to, in fact, long since said, exited the police force and perhaps aren't there anymore. Yeah, but some of them are actually moving up the echelons, aren't they? Like, are we I have don't the... believe that, James. I don't think there's any evidence of that. I mm. think many people who were dinosaurs and prejudiced in their police roles um, started exiting pretty promptly um, after things such as um, Gelpin were formed and established after uh, three police commissioners marched at Pride March. I think those those matters sent a lot of people to their retirements, and uh, and so it should have. <laughs> There's another message in here from a listener. Uh, there are may, many gay individuals who are quite extreme in relation to religious groups who display ignorance as well about the progressive and academic doctrines of theology that welcome gays. Um, this is also uh, a, another thing that uh, we are, in fact, quite a prejudiced community ourselves, are we not? Um, we display probably, um, as you say, as this says, a certain amount of religious prejudice. We certainly... I have racial prejudice uh, in within our own community. You only have to look at um, online stuff that uh, goes on and on and on about, you know, no Asians and all oh, the rest Oh, we're of having it. sexual racism into an upcoming show, Doug. So we are, we are. We'll um, so, I mean, do we really have any right to expect that, uh, you know, we should be treated differently in the law? Oh, I think we've, we've got to, before we have change, we have to turn and look at ourselves and say, are we part of the solution or have we been part of the problem? And if we can identify our own behaviours that mean uh, we've been part of the problem and we can just, we suddenly become part of the solution. And I think with sexual racism, with um, religious vilification, with you know the re- lack of respect, if we show it internally to other members of our community, uh, it's it's not hard to realise when it's prejudice. It's not hard to realise. Um, we have to question each other. We have to um, not accept a racist gag that one of our group tells and the rest of us giggle away or had done so in the past. We have to challenge behaviours in our own community. And only if when we do that successfully, we can stand up and demand the same change against us from the broader community. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that's very much something we, we do need to tackle within our own community. Um, I want to 
briefly touch on what the Anti-Violence Project does, because, I mean, this is your baby. Uh, you've been doing it for quite a long time now. Well, uh, myself, and, uh, myself and 15 people set it up uh, 17 years ago, and uh, three of the existing board are still around. The, from the original crew are still there. The rest of the people are um, sort of brand new or people that come on and share their part and then drop away and do other interesting stuff as well. But, yes, I've been around for, uh, for that duration. So, so, so what does the Anti-Violence Project do? What are, your, what are your main focuses at the moment? We're the peak for the LGBTIQ community around prejudice, motivated crime and violence that takes place against us and uh, within our communities between us. And mainly it's about uh, building discussion uh, within communities and with the broad community that slowly chips away and, and uh, removes that prejudice. We also provide systems for people to step up and report violence if they're not yet comfortable about talking with police. So, so, so you, you're a little bit like a sort of special gay crime stoppers. <laughs> if you like, yes. Well, we work with crime. We work quite closely with Crime Stoppers as well because they, you know, uh, often they have crimes that need our input to help solve them as well. Um, but yeah, no, we're we're about that um, that interface, and the aim is to do ourselves out of jo- a job so that we don't actually need people to come to us if they feel comfortable go directly to Victoria Police, and uh, you know, therefore. If we're going to do that role where we encourage people to go to Victoria Police, we expect 100% clarity and certainty that the response from police will be appropriate. So we have discussions with Victoria Police. We sit on reference groups. We work with them to make sure their training's right. Uh, we, we do what it takes to make sure that Victoria Police is a good organisation for us to interface with them. Good. Well, thanks for your time tonight, Greg, and thanks for taking time out from your... Uh your little bacchanalia down in Berwick. And uh, I hope you uh, have a good time there and we'll see you back here very soon. Thank you for listening to a Joycast from Joy 94.9. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.